At this time, I'm going to invite Yana to come up. Uh, she's going to read our scriptures for us this morning. Um, as we are going back into the book of Acts, she's going to read it for us in Russian and in English, and I'm super stoked for that. I think that's one of the coolest things that we do. And again, as I pitched it this morning to the team that puts the services together, we should never, ever stop doing that. So, Yana, if you would, please read the scriptures. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 13, verse, starting from verse 43. Когда же собрание было распущено, то многие иудеи и учтители Бога, обращенные из язычников, последовали за Павлом и Варнавой, которые, беседуя с ними, убеждали их пребывать в благодати Божьей. В следующую субботу почти весь город собрался слушать Слово Божье. Но иудеи, увидев народ, исполнили зависти и противоречия и засловия, сопротивлялись тому, что говорил Павел. Тогда Павел и Варнавы с дерзновением сказали, «Вам первым надежало быть проповедано Слово Божье, но как вы отвергаете его и сами себя делаете недостойными вечной жизни, то вот мы обращаемся к язычникам. Ибо так заповедовал нам Господь. Я положил тебя во свет язычников, чтобы ты был в спасении до края земли». Язычники, слыша это, радовались и прославляли Слово Господне, и уверовали все, которые были предоставлены вечной жизни». And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Amen. Thank you, Yana. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 12 and 13. We have a lot to cover. Thank you, Pastor Aaron, for giving me two chapters to preach on. And I haven't preached since September, so I've got a lot stored up, so buckle your seatbelts. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Sound City. And uh, it is a blessing and a privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning. As you're finding Acts 12 and 13, uh, when you think about your life or tell your story, I imagine that you likely have some turning points in that story, some dividing lines, some before and after points in your life. Uh, here's an example. For Melissa and I, uh, we often, when telling our story, we might have a turning point that separates before kids and after kids. If you're a parent, you can relate to that. Usually it's along the lines of, what did we do with all that disposable income? And why didn't we take more naps or more vacation with all that time we had? That kind of thing. Um, or maybe if you're in a different stage of life, if you're younger, um, I believe you might have turning points related to school. 
advancing to another, another grade or graduating, going to college. Or maybe your turning points might be something along the lines of starting a career, making a big move, buying a home, that sort of thing. And hopefully, you see as a turning point, a before and an after, uh, around when you met Jesus, when you gave your life to him in faith. Well, when we think about the, the message of the Bible, which is God's redemptive work, the story of his work to save us from our sins. There are a lot of those kind of pivotal points, turning points. And especially when we look at the message of Acts, we see in today's chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 13, we're going to find one major turning point, one pivot point, and, and two lesser pivot points. So I want us to, to, to see the lens, see these two chapters through this lens today. And uh, just a reminder as we're diving back into Acts, what is Acts all about? Well, Luke is the author. You remember he wrote the gospel according to Luke as well. That was his first volume. And this is kind of the second volume. Uh, So Luke, the gospel of Luke leading up to the resurrection of Christ. And then Acts starting with the ascension and the commission to the church. And so uh, the book of Acts is the story, the history of the followers of Jesus as they're taking the good news that Jesus is the Savior, the good news of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and then taking that out uh, to proclaim that. We see Jesus' commission to the church in the very first bit of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said to his followers, which applies to us as well, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that is the point of Acts. It's following that progression. And so as we dive into chapters 12 and 13, there's a ton going on. And uh, today is going to be a little bit more of a narrative approach. I'm going to try to tell you most of the story that's happening and uh, stopping along the way for some examinations of truth. But here's the goal. I want us to see the prayerful boldness of the early church and be inspired to imitate that. That's what I hope we can see from these two chapters. So let's pray along those lines. God, would you open our hearts to your word? Would you apply your word to our lives? Would you give us a vision for your glory through the proclamation, the spread of of the message of Jesus Christ? Would you give us courage and faith and boldness to uh, follow you and proclaim Jesus just like the early church did? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the big idea, idea of today's passage really is the big idea of the whole book of Acts. And it's this, that God's people are a light shining in a dark world. I mean, from the very beginning, that commission, that was the point. You are my witnesses. You're going to go out into the whole world and you're going to shine the light. Now, how many of you got to hear Rabbi Matt way back out in the summer when we were outside and we heard Rabbi Matt speak from chapter 2? Yeah, it was, it was memorable. We love that. Especially that beautiful benediction he's, he's saying to us. Beautiful. 
Well, uh, Rabbi Matt said something very interesting about Acts chapter 2. It might have caused a little controversy if you had any discussions with anybody about it. Uh, he said it about a hundred times, so you probably didn't forget. He said, there's nothing new in Acts chapter 2. Remember, he said that over and over. Well, really, he, what the, the part that he's talking about is God's redemptive plan has not changed. What we're getting to in Acts 2 is just uh, the furtherance of that plan. And so we're seeing that continue to live out. And, and the plan is God is redeeming people through the light that he's shining uh, through his people. And so God has made his people to be the light shining in a dark world. At the end of our passage, part of what Yana read, this is reiterated. This is uh, emphasized. And so Acts 13.47 shows that God's people are intended to be this light. Paul was speaking to a, a group of Jewish God-fearers in Asia Minor when he said, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But this isn't new for Paul. This isn't new for the, the Israelite people or the Jewish people. This is God's plan from the beginning. And we can trace it all the way back. Uh, we can see it in Genesis when God spoke to Abraham. And he was first calling out a people for himself. And he says, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Then in Exodus, as God was speaking through Moses, saying, I'm going to make you uh, my people, my kingdom of priests. In other words, carrying forth the word of light. Then in Isaiah, which is where Paul actually quoted from, Isaiah 49, God is saying, I will also make you a light to the nations and my salvation to, the, uh, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus, in Matthew 5, we read it in our liturgy earlier, says you, speaking to his followers, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And then Paul, one of my favorite uh, parts of the New Testament, Philippians 2.15, Paul says, Shine like stars in the world among a crooked and perverted generation. So we, as God's people, and the, and the people in the early church we're dealing with here in Acts 12 and 13 are intended to be a light shining in a dark world. But what is the source of that light? Well, the source is Jesus Christ and the message that he is the Savior. Whatever other sources people might be trying to point to for light, enlightenment, education, uh, technology, uh, art, whatever people might say, this is the light. We know there is only one light that leads to life, and that is Jesus Christ. If, you, if you'll allow me a little bit of a childish illustration, uh, my boys and I uh, lately have been playing a video game that one of the boys got for Christmas. It is one of the later versions of The Legend of Zelda. Uh, and so last night I was sitting on the sofa playing this Legends of Zelda game and my number three son came up and sat beside me and started to give me advice. This is a puzzle game. You have to figure out how to do things and what tools to use and sequences to push things or, or accomplish things to solve the puzzle. And my number three son, who's 10 years old, 
He's telling me advice. And I turn to him and I say, do you know how long I've been playing Legend of Zelda games? <laughs> 30 years. Right? And so he, he learned his place and he... he <laughs> He only, he, only scoffed, he only scoffed inside. He didn't let anything come out. But, but as I was thinking about that, that first Legend of Zelda game 30 years ago that I was playing, it had this, this really challenging part. And this is about the light and the dark. In some of the, in some of the rooms, you would enter into a room and you had, it was completely pitch black. And you couldn't see anything. You didn't know where to go. You didn't know if there were uh, enemies you might bump into or traps. And you had to find a way to light that room. And there was only one way. And you had to find the right tool or the right sequence. And you had to light the room so you could progress. That's That's the point of the gospel. We might try lots of other ways to find light. But there is only one light is Jesus the Christ. And this is the message that the early church was commissioned to hold out, to proclaim, and it is still the message that we have today. It is this good news, the only hope for a world lost in darkness. Now, first of all, it's a little bit uncomfortable to talk about the world being lost in darkness. It's not, it's not a very acceptable thing to say, especially once you get down to a one-on-one, person-to-person conversation. But it is the truth. Every one of us, every human being starts out in the same place, in our own rebellious sinfulness, lost, separated from our maker, the God who loves us and would would lavish good things on us, would give us eternal life, but we have removed ourselves from that relationship by our own sinfulness. And there is nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves, to make ourselves right with God, and yet God sent us the Savior, who was the eternal Son of God, who put on flesh, stepped down into this world, lived a sinless life, and yet died on the cross where sinners should die, where you and I deserve to be. He went there for us, gave his life willingly to please the Father, to purchase salvation, died and was buried. And because his work was accomplished, because sin was covered, because death no longer had a claim, he rose again. And was victorious. Appeared to his followers. Gave them the commission to spread this good news. And then ascended to the right hand of God. Where he sits enthroned. Interceding for us. Before the Father. And this is the message that not only we need. But that the entire world needs. It is the good news. And this is the message that the early church was proclaiming. Was preaching. We read a great portion of it. Yana read for us a great portion of that message from one of uh, Paul's sermons uh, there in Acts chapter 13. And part of what Paul said there describes that we must respond in faith. Paul says, Jesus, the one God raised up, did not decay. 
Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified through the law of Moses. In other words, he was telling them there is a way to be made right, to be forgiven of your sins, to be forgiven and justified in a way you can never uh, achieve by doing enough good, or in their case, by observing the law perfectly enough, you cannot be justified except through faith in the death, burial, victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that was the message. And he was calling them to believe and be forgiven. And I wonder if this is something new that, that you're just now hearing. If you're new to church or new to this discussion, or maybe if you're joining us online, and this is a new message for you, Press in, seek out this truth that there is only one Savior. Give your life to him in faith. And as Paul writes, you will be forgiven. But even as the early church is holding out this message, proclaiming Jesus the Savior, they are shining the light and are running into forces that are working against the light of Jesus. And so that's where Acts chapter 12 starts with forces working against the light of Jesus. <clears throat> so I want to read the start of chapter 12, a few verses here. And this is in the, the early church is still in, uh, mostly in Jerusalem here. And this is where this setting is. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James. John's brother with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. Let's think about this for just a quick minute. You have the early church there in Jerusalem and they have... A king, a ruler set over them. This is Herod, he's called. King Herod. He's set over them by the Roman government. You might be thinking, wait, that Herod sounds really familiar. He shows up a lot in the New Testament. Well, guess what? There's three Herods, not just one. They, they all have, they share that name. But this is Herod Agrippa. He was the grandson of Herod the Great that you remember from the story of Jesus's uh, arrival on earth. Herod the Great, the one that slaughtered all the infants to try to eliminate this promised Savior King, but unsuccessfully. So this is his grandson, Herod Agrippa. And he had been set over the region, yet he had been, had been given his grandfather's territory to rule uh, by the Roman government. And his, uh, he was under a lot of pressure to keep the, the region uh, peaceful, and submissive. See, the, the, that region had a lot of history of rising up against their, uh, the, the governments that tried to rule over them. And the, the, the Romans wanted him to control the people. And so he found out that the Jewish people of the region were not happy with this new way, this, this Christ-following group, this church. They were not happy with those people. And so Herod found out that if he persecuted the church, it pleased the Jewish people and they were more willing to submit and follow his rule. And so uh, we find here in Acts 12, he begins to 
excessively persecute the church, including putting James to death. That pleased the people. So what's he do next? He goes to Peter, arrests Peter. And he intended to execute Peter as well. Peter had to stay in, in prison for a while because they had just entered the Passover season and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed. And it was considered unholy to have executions during that time. And so Peter had to remain in prison. And it was during that time that we see uh, Peter resting there in, in the prison. And this is our first turning point. Remember I said we're going to see kind of three turning points in these two chapters. And here's the first one. As the persecution is coming for this early church, they were at a turning point because they could shrink back. They could let the desired effect happen. They could say, this is too much. Uh, There's too much risk. And out of fear, out of desperation, out of self-preservation, they could shrink back. And we, we probably wouldn't blame them. And I wonder, as we think about the persecution the early church faced, do you find it hard to relate? We, here in, in our Western world with uh, so much safety in our country, so many freedoms, it's so hard for us to relate to the persecution, the oppression uh, that, that the early church faced. But you know, there, there are regions and countries all over the world currently where Christians are still persecuted where churches are driven underground, where there's much oppression happening. Uh, if, if you want to learn more about those uh, places in the world and the people that are following Christ faithfully uh, amid persecution, in our uh, extra resources on the website under the sermon, you can find uh, some links to lead you to, uh, to learn about those. But how do we relate? And... Uh, I would say that nothing that the church in America faces comes anywhere near the type of persecution that, that the early church faced with the execution of James and the imprisonment of Peter and so many other things. But we still, we can't, we can't shy back from examining our hearts because, oh, well, we never faced anything like they faced. We still need to say, what is, what is our situation? And I would say uh, one aspect of how uh, we are treated as the church, as Christ followers, is that uh, we have, well, we are facing societal relegation, which means we are told that we are no longer relevant, that we have nothing to speak into the conversation, that we are limited to a small area of spiritual matters. And even then, those are private and personal and cannot be uh, shared or uh, proclaimed out to others. Increasingly, we are seeing hostility toward those who hold to biblical positions that the society has evolved beyond. And while that is nowhere near the same thing as the kind of persecution the early church faced, it can have some of the same results. Because out of fear or anxiety uh, of being singled out or put on the spot or out of a worry that uh, our position in, uh, of, uh, of, of importance or relevance is being taken away, we might be tempted to shut our mouths, to compromise our message, 
to slowly fade in the background. And that would have the same effect in stopping the message of Jesus Christ. And so we must recognize all we have to offer this world is the message that Jesus is the Savior. And anything that works against us to stop us spreading that message, we must stand against those things and proclaim Jesus as the Savior. Sometimes we buy into a false idea that in order to do good in the world, we have to be quiet about the message of Jesus. And I would argue There is no good that we can do in the world apart from the message of Jesus. Any good that we want to achieve will not be achieved if we keep the message back. When we preach Jesus for the salvation of souls, then we can see good coming out from that. But we cannot achieve any good independent of the message of Jesus. Now, as we're thinking about that oppression and persecution for the early church, remember I said they were at a pivot point. They could shrink back. They could be silent. They could stop the spread of the gospel. How did they respond? Well, first of all, they responded by going to their knees. The the church prayed fervently. Peter was in prison, Acts 12, 5 tells us, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. The the ESV says earnestly. The church prayed earnestly. Maybe you have another translation that says something different. But the meaning is the same. And I wonder when was a time that we prayed fervently and earnestly? Either you as an individual, your family, or us together as a church. You know, it's usually during times of intensity or duress or some overwhelming obstacle or burden. That's when we go to the Lord in earnesty and and with uh, fervent prayers. Now, this is a little bit of a side note, but I think that is a little bit of an insight to why God allows his people to walk through difficult times. Because it is often only in difficult times that we truly set our eyes on the Lord. That we truly draw close to Him, seeking His presence and His direction and depending on His strength. And that gives us a little insight both into our hearts and God's desire for us as well. So the church is praying fervently for Peter who is in prison there. And as the church prays, God is at work and God intervenes miraculously. So Herod was intending to bring out Peter uh, for trial uh, after the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread had ended. And that very night, Peter, being bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and says, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. And so Peter is miraculously 
released from prison by this angel. Peter thinks it's a dream. He thinks God is showing him a vision about something that's about to happen. And but so he he follows the angel's instructions, wraps his cloak around him, starts following him out. And the the gates swing open by themselves. The guards stay asleep. They don't wake up. And they they're walking. And they, when they get a couple streets down, the angel disappears. Peter comes to himself and realizes he's been released. And immediately seeks out the church. And where does he find them? Uh, He finds them uh, gathered together and praying. He goes to the house they're in, knocks on the door, and a servant comes. And it's kind of this courtyard. So uh, Peter's staying out on the street side. The servant comes uh, out to the courtyard and and knocks on, and he knocks on the door. And she says, Who is he? He says, It's Peter. She can't believe it. He convinces her. She runs upstairs to tell everyone. And they think she's just caught up in the hysteria of the emotions of it and uh, this, this, this strong desire to have Peter out. And they try to convince her, no, it's, it's your imagination. But she finally gets through to them. But she had left him standing at the door outside on the street. And so they run down and open the door. And there's Peter. And they are overjoyed. And they start to raise a commotion. But Peter silences them because he's a fugitive. And if they, if they alert the city, then the guards will come and take him back. And so he, he tells them the miracle that God has just done. They're encouraged, and he heads off. And he, uh, he goes on to prepare to escape so he can keep the message of Christ going. And so the, in that pivot point, in that turning point, the church could have shrunk back Instead, chose to be faithful and persevere with the message. And so the word continues to spread. And as we see the word spreading, I want to bring up one quick little result that is happening here. You're going to find at the end of Acts chapter 12 that God strikes down Herod. And it's not for what we would think it should be for. We would like to see Herod struck down for persecuting the church, for executing James, for imprisoning and intending to execute Peter. We would like Herod to be punished for those things. Instead, Herod was, uh, being, being the, the Roman authorized governor of the region, uh, he was angry at some of his uh, neighboring uh, countries that he was in charge of. They had angered him in some way, and he was threatening to withdraw the support that he was supposed to give them to feed their people. And they came to him and begged uh, an audience with him and had to work through one of his servants to get an audience. And he granted an audience. He sat down in his royal robes. He gave some big speech to them. And as he was giving this speech, the people began to cry out, oh, this is not the voice of a man. This is the voice of a God. You are a God. And Instead of King Herod quieting that, says, no, I'm just a man. I'm a servant of God. He allowed that praise that, that should have gone to God. Glory should have gone to God. And he accepted it for himself. And God struck him down. Struck him down in a rather interesting way. Uh, Luke records for us. Now, Luke, being a physician, we would love some more detail. But he, uh, he just says that the angel of the Lord struck him. He was eaten by worms and he died. So we don't know. Could have been several things could have happened. One, God in his omniscience could have seen this day coming, caused the parasite to infiltrate uh, Herod earlier, and it just broke forth and consumed him all at once in that moment. Could have been that that would would be the most dramatic and cool way. Or or similarly, the angel could have struck him and boom, the the worms appeared inside him and, and destroyed him. Or it could be that 
uh, the less exciting way. At that moment, the angel struck him, and then over a course of time, he succumbed and died and passed away. We don't know which, but, but that's not the biggest question. When we see Herod dying for, uh, rightly for accepting glory that should only go to God, we would also ask the question, why did God not take Herod's life for the other egregious things he did against the, the people of God, the message of Christ, the, the church of, of Jesus? Why did God not strike him down for, uh, for, for, the, for those terrible persecutions? Or even before, to stop the persecutions? And I will say, we don't know. We don't know God's timing. We don't know God's ways. But we do know that the scripture teaches us that God is always at work, always accomplishing his purposes, always working in his perfect timing and with his goals in mind, and that always God will bring about the result that in the end will be for the good of his people, for the glory of his name. And we have to trust that. And our timing would be different, but we are not omniscient and perfect in our judgments. As Herod was struck down and then the people... The, pers- the, the, the church, they persevered in their witness. The word of God spread and multiplied. And this is how we end chapter 12. And we're near the end of our time today. And so I want us to get to this, this major turning point. The, the whole pivot in Acts is between the focus on the church in Jerusalem and, and, and the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And then now from Acts chapter 13 it goes, the gospel is spread to the ends of the earth. Remember that was Jesus' commission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here Acts chapter 13 is that moment when the message begins to go to the ends of the earth. And as, we, as you have time, and hopefully today or in the next few days, to read Acts 12 and 13, you're going to see two, two examples, two, two brief illustrations in Acts chapter 13 that, that, that point at the message of Jesus going to the whole world. And one has to do with what they call Paul. Uh, he has... He has multiple names. Now, in your life, just like in my life, uh, you have different names you go by. Uh, for, for instance, most people that I know call me Jason. Sometimes, if I'm reaching out to a church person and I want to distinguish which Jason is calling them or writing them, I might say Pastor Jason. Uh, we have other Jasons in the church, other Jasons in your life. Uh, but my favorite label is when one of my boys calls me daddy. That's my favorite thing to be called. And it's the same with you. Different people in different contexts will call you different things. Well, that's why we have Paul having two names. So, sometimes we are mistaken in thinking that God changed Saul's name there at his moment of conversion. But really, it's the fact that Saul is his Hebrew name and Paul is the name he's known in the Gentile world. Two names meaning the same person, but just the the context of which world he was operating in, the Jewish world or the Gentile world. It says right there in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, but Saul also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, and it goes on to tell what's happening. 
This is a pivotal moment. It doesn't seem like just reading the words there on the page, but if you t- take a step back and look at Acts, every time Saul is mentioned before this, he's called Saul. And it's because the, the gospel was primarily going to the Jewish world. Every moment past this, except for a couple times when it's re- re- referring to times before this point, every time past this in Acts 13 and beyond, he's called Paul. Because the gospel is primarily going to the Gentile world. It's very small, it's very subtle, but it's a key uh, illustration of how the gospel is sent to the world now. And a second similar is the, this location of where the kind of the hub of the gospel work is happening. It was in Jerusalem, and here in Acts chapter 13 it moves and, and moves up to Antioch, which is between, uh, on the border of Syria and Turkey today, a little town called, a city called Antioch. That's where now there's this church that becomes kind of the hub of the gospel spreading from there. And from there, we see the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. And in Acts 13, the very first verse, we get this glimpse of that church. It says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And it begins to list some. There's Barnabas. There's Simeon, who is called Niger. There's Lucius of Cyrene. Menean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That's a, that would be a Herod Agrippa's father. And there's Saul. So I know it's just a quick list of names, but they're representative of the fact these guys aren't all from Jerusalem. They're not all from Judea. They're actually from other areas. Barnabas, even though he was Jewish, he was from Cyprus. Uh, uh, Simeon, he's from Africa. Also, Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was a capital city on the, the North African coast. And, uh, and this Menean, we don't know a lot about him, but he's connected to uh, a Roman governor. He's probably uh, has ties to the, the Roman uh, government. So we've got this very diverse group of leaders leading this church that's now the hub of the gospel message going to the world. And it's this huge transition. And I think we need to grasp we would not be here without this transition, without the fulfillment of this commission from Christ that the gospel go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are standing on what would be considered the ends of the earth from Jerusalem. If you think about it that way. We are recipients of that. And we'll see more in a moment. Uh, I'd encourage you to read some in Acts chapter 13. Uh, We don't have time for it today. But uh, a miraculous conversion on Barnabas' home area of Cyprus. And, uh, And then I want us to get to... Uh, the final turning point uh, that I mentioned there were three today. And this really has implications for us as, as the church. As Paul and Barnabas are making their way on their first missionary journey, they go through Cyprus, as I just mentioned, and then they go over to Asia Minor. And as they're pressing interior uh, into Asia Minor, they end up in an area where, uh, and they have this pattern. Remember I said that the message is to go to the ends of the earth, but they still always start at the synagogue. They go to town, they'll find the synagogue, and they will begin to preach the message of Jesus there and then out to the Gentiles from there. And so they go to one town and they do that. And the Jewish people of the area, they are hungry for the message. 
It's what Yana read earlier. They're hungry to hear that Jesus is the Savior that they've been waiting for. And so they preach the message. And then they say, please come back to synagogue next Sabbath and tell us more. But in the intermediary time, in that week, the message had spread through the whole region that there was a message of salvation. And so on the next Sabbath, instead of just the the synagogue, the Jewish people showing up, all the Gentiles showed up too. And they were eager to hear the message of Jesus. And Paul began to proclaim to them that this message, as God had intended, wasn't just for the Israelite people. It was for all who would hear and believe and give their lives to Jesus. And here's the turning point. The Jewish people in that city, they began to be jealous. And they let jealousy block out the gospel. They rejected the gospel because they were jealous of the Gentile people. They wanted to be the exclusive people of God to the exclusion of anyone else who would believe. And so in Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 48 through 52, we see this. When the Gentiles heard the message, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So this is what was happening. God's message will not stop going to the world. But the question for the church is, will we join in? You see, there's a lot of danger for us to act like that synagogue did in that city. That we get so comfortable being the people of God that we want all the focus, we want all the emphasis, we want the resources to be spent on us, and we forget. We are the people of God, but we've been called to a mission. There are more people of God who've yet to be reached, and we are supposed to be part of that as well. And so let's, let's be careful to examine ourselves and, and, and prevent that kind of inward, self-preserving focus that would, that would keep us from joining in on the mission with Christ. So will we shine the light of Christ is the question. And that's a, a turning point that that group of Jewish people did not fare well in. And it's a turning point that stands before us as well. As we finish, I want to ask these three questions or, or these three responses I want to offer to you. First, like the early church, let's pray more. Let's find ways to be earnest and fervent in our praying, even when we're not driven to our knees by desperation. Hopefully we have some things to offer you in in the coming weeks of some more opportunities to pray together as a church in the ongoing rhythm of our church and some special times throughout the year. But let's commit ourselves to praying more. Let's also examine ourselves individually, together as our culture in the church, to discover what is it that makes us shrink back from boldly being part of proclaiming the gospel. I know this, this is a hard time with COVID and the restrictions on interacting with people, but we can't let that be an excuse. We have to look for ways to carry the message of Jesus with us. And finally, let's, let's join in that work. There's, the work of the gospel is going on today. It is not stopping. Let's join in. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, 
God, thank you for the bold witness of the early church. Thank you for those turning points when they could have uh, shrunk back and they didn't because they followed you faithfully. And God, even as we face such a minuscule type of oppression compared to them, help us realize that if we shrink back, it has the same effect. Lord, let us not hold back the message of Christ. Let us not be silent. Let us not uh, buy into the lie that we are irrelevant. We, are the, we have the most relevant message that anyone could ever hear. Lord, would you put that message on our lips? Would you give us uh, creativity in how to, sh- how to spread the gospel, even in a difficult time? And Lord, would you, would you increase our praying as a church that we would always be seeking you, always be joining with you in the work of spreading the gospel? And even now as we respond to you, Lord, would you do your work among us today in Jesus' name? Amen.